2: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer.
1: Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
3: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great daily newsletters, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. A reminder that if you like this podcast, subscribers to Access get an ad-free version of the show every Monday, that's four days, before the public release. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me is Yumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of The China Project, a man who has yet to correctly solve a single <laughs> Wordle puzzle after nearly 400 <laughs> attempts. It's amazing. I think that's the record. Jeremy,
0: greet the people, won't you? (laughs) Yeah, Wordle is a curse on the world. (laughs) At least Twitter is dying now, so I don't have to see uh, your uh, Wordle results every day, Kaiser. (laughs) Well, I've stopped
3: posting. I stopped playing Wordle. Anyway, um, today we've asked two old friends who are still in Beijing to join us on the show to talk about the remarkable protests that took place over this last weekend in Beijing, Shanghai, and at least six or seven other cities around China. Jeremiah Jenny and David Moser are both familiar to anyone who remembers the show from back in the day when me, and I were still in Beijing in that grotty apartment, and they are the co-hosts of the excellent Barbarians at the Gate podcast, which we hope you will check out if you aren't already a subscriber. Jeremiah Jenny is a writer and historian who's lived in Beijing for over 20 years, and he is somebody whose witty and often profound observations I have quoted quite often and liberally in various talks that I've given. Jeremiah, great to see you again, man.
0: David Moser has, of course, co-hosted uh, the Cynical Podcast on numerous occasions. He is a true polymath, a linguist, a composer, an outstanding jazz pianist, and a savant on all things Beijing and China. He's lived in Beijing for about 30 years now. David, welcome back to Seneca.
2: Well, thank you for that, Jeremy. That's uh, very flattering. I don't know much about math, though. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or apparently the definition of words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the word poly now, uh, I, I re- realized from the recent uh, implosion of um, FTX and uh, Sam Backman-Fried's empire, uh, poly now means polyamorous. Uh. Um, in 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 the discourse but anyway <clears throat> enough of that let's start with the situation in beijing and elsewhere right now it is tuesday evening uh for you you, you too in beijing and i imagine by the time people hear this podcast it's going to be at least wednesday morning uh what is the latest
2: well after a very intense uh, sunday evening yesterday evening was relatively quiet and of course all attention was on the 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 spots in beijing and uh the Urumqi road or street uh, in Shanghai, where the the, the, the biggest uh, protests took place. But from what I can see from the news and from actually going by Liang Manqiao today or by taxi, there's quite a p- police presence there already. Uh, so hmm. whatever, and the police presence and then also the actual tension of the protests, as well as the uh, freezing weather today, probably... Uh, kept uh, some of the people that were there last night from coming back again. Yeah, I heard it was like minus 10 with wind chill or something like that, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, David's absolutely right. The the two biggest factors, I think, overnight were just that it's incredibly cold today and it's going to be cold for most of the week. And also, you know, I get the feeling that in a lot of the major cities, and, and there seems to be a different response in the big cities versus some of the smaller cities, but in the big cities, it seems like on the first instance of protest that the police either didn't have orders or they were at least given orders to not crack down so heavily on the demonstrators unless things got very much out of line. That was certainly the case in Beijing. And, but the question is, what happens on night two and night three? And it was clear, at least in Beijing, going into Monday night that they had gone to DEFCON, you know, fuck around and find out. And so as a result, they flooded the zone throughout, you know, Liang Chao, but also in other parts of the city too. So it would have to be a, a pretty brave group of people or a brave person to kind of go out there, stand in the freezing cold, and being surrounded by so many of the forces of order. I think the only people who were out there, honestly, were a lot of the uh, journalists just kind of checking out to see if anything was going to occur.
3: <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. So you're telling me that the A4 revolution turns out to be a paper tiger? <laughs>
1: No, I mean, I, I think it's too soon to tell because I think, you know, yeah, just because yeah. the demonstrations haven't continued doesn't mean the sentiment's not there. I think one of the things, and David, you can jump in here too, but just talking to people, like on almost all different levels, it's hard to find anyone who's not frustrated, pissed off, depressed all at the same time over what's happening, over the zero COVID situation. And also there are some people, too, for whom the zero COVID situation is a a doorway through which other feelings uh, have been building up about things that have been happening in China. That's not everybody, you know, but there are some people who, you know, have expressed frustration with the policies in terms of public health, but also see that as part of a larger issue, too.
3: Sure.
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I always, I also thought that uh, that that was a kind of a serendipitous moment on the Sunday night when when lots of things uh, sort of coalesced and uh, like uh, revolutions in the past, though in in eighty nine, it was it sort of happened uh, unplanned and and uh, you know uh, sort of on the spur of the moment and so suddenly they had a lot of people out there and they sort of had a movement without knowing that it was going to happen and I think that from talking to some people today. I think there's a little bit of feeling that that, uh, that this was a sort of, in Chinese, the word is fa right? you just letting off steam, blowing off steam. And, and there was this there was tension built up, and, and these protests actually succeeded in, in blowing off steam and uh, also for people who were just watching, you know, secondhand, blowing off second-hand steam as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, people watching also felt it. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, – Everyone knows that there's a there's a problem to be solved here, and I think a lot of people are thinking, well, now wait a minute. Uh, we we do there's a lot of things we're upset about, and we, there's a lot of uh, aspects of the of the uh, quarantines and lockdowns that we would like to be uh, at least uh, you know modified, if not cancelled. But we have a big problem to solve here, which is this virus. And uh, this is something that, we've, that the government has got to take charge of and we have got to participate in it. And this is not the time for a full-fledged revolution uh, where the, the police, the resources of the government is wasted on things like crowd control and, uh, and uh, the people on the street will only exacerbate the infectious rate. And so I think a lot of people, there was a kind of a sensible immediate pullback is the way I felt for, huh. for people I was talking
0: to. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so, David, I mean, how would you characterize uh, people's feelings about the virus at the moment? Because uh, it, it certainly um, seemed that the World Cup was one of the uh, factors in this, in that people were seeing the rest of the world without face masks. At least that's how it's been read uh, 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 abroad, that um, seeing vast crowds of face maskless people was one of the things that uh, added to the anger. Are people worried about the virus still? Uh,
2: yes, of course. I think people are still worried about the virus. Uh, the problem is that there's frustration that, that that after a sort of spectacular kickoff, where you did have an incredible success at, at crushing crushing the virus very early on and then preventing the spread and, and, and the incredibly low death rate for such a large uh, country. But it seems like China didn't sort of go the the, next, the extra mile and like finish the job, and it seems like when when people are looking at the outside world, like the World Cup, they're sort of thinking, why aren't we there yet? If if our strategy, if our zero COVID strategy was so successful, but another th- another problem is that people are afraid of the virus, but the the precise sort of risk has been blurred by the fact that all these lockdowns and all these sort of inexplicable temporary Uh, quasi-shutdowns, all come without any explanation of exactly what the scientific basis for it is. Hmm. In fact, one of the biggest problems with all of this is there's a huge lack of information, uh, official information, Explaining exactly the epidemic science here that that is supposedly dictating all of these very drastic moves, and I think that that people have sort of lost the focus because there there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, statistics about how many cases or how many positive cases in each district, and it's broken down in sort of micro statistics. But but everyone is kind of lost touch of you know, how, what is the risk of this new strain? How infectious is it? What is the death rate? What if we just ignored it and, and went about our lives? Would there actually be any sort of a uh, a sort of a disaster? So I think that's the, the government has done a terrible job at, at informing the populace of exactly where the risk is here to justify all of these drastic uh, moves.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that one of the things that I keep seeing over and over again in posts and so forth is just 不科学. Right. Because there's always this sort of appeal uh, as a something scientific would be acceptable uh, if there were, you know, actual appeals to legitimate science. And we'll drill down a little bit into that in just a bit. But Jeremiah, first I want to turn to you and ask, just so that we're clear, what cities are we aware of where actual large scale protests have taken place? I mean, we've talked about Beijing and Shanghai, but Wuhan, Chongqing, Chengdu, Lanzhou, uh, Urumqi, of course, and even little sleepy Dali. I've
1: heard. Yeah, the Dolly protests were very much on brand as they walked down the street with the acoustic guitar. Um, right, right. Well, I, there's a, there is a good online map, or at least there's a map that's been circulating on Twitter, and I haven't had a chance to take a look and verify all the data points on it. But it has sh- it shows a pretty large number of cities. Now, of course, I, I think so. There's a little bit of conflation between like the kind of um, demonstrations, you know, as spontaneous as they were that we saw in Shanghai and Beijing, uh, and also acts of resistance, sometimes quite forceful resistance to zero COVID measures. So for example, a factory or a housing complex kind of bursting through the gates or taking down some of the barriers. And these these are also happening everywhere as well. I think those tend to reflect very much, very specifically local concerns like I really need to get out of this apartment complex now, and maybe a little bit less on some of the broader issues that have been talked about in the international media. On the other hand, it is very clear that some of the protests in the bigger cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, um, there's been some sympathy protests in Hong Kong, uh, Hangzhou last night as well, and there are some oh. good Twitter feeds that, that are also kind of archiving this as it happens in real time, kind of scraping things off of the Chinese internet and, in, and taking in videos from people who are submitting them. So it's clear that this is something that's happening everywhere, although the things that are happening everywhere may not be the same, if you know what I mean. They may not all be have large-scale demonstrations. They may all be talking about general policy. Some of them are very specific to local situations.
3: I hope you'll give us a list of some of these good Twitter accounts to follow.
1: Yeah, the the one I've been following is is one called, I think it's (laughs) Li Laoshir, Buxi Ni Uh, and it's, uh, it's in Chinese, but it's been, um, and it's been under attack actually on Twitter most of the day from the usual suspects, but this, they, or the people who are behind this have been, as far as I can tell, really the kind of the best resource for tracking all kinds of different, um, events as they've unfolded in the last, at least at least four or five days I've been following it.
0: Yeah, this has taken my recommendation, but that account, uh, the Li Laoshit account, there's also why you told your law uh, on Twitter. Um, and uh, Intium, I think they're the same account, Jeremy. Hong- Is that the same account? I think so. Okay. I think
1: that's his handle or their, excuse me, their handle.
0: Ah, okay. Um, and then the Intium Media Group, which started in Hong Kong, has been putting out various maps. They were the ones that calculated that 79 uh, tertiary education institutions had students organizing protests. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the size of the protests? Uh, have you uh, either of you got a, an idea of, of uh, how big the crowds were? And what are the demographics? I mean, there were some interesting things. There seem to be a lot of students. Uh, young women have also been rather prominent. Any comments on that?
1: Well, I, you know, the size of the protests is, like any kind of demonstration, is something that gets contested. And especially because a lot of these have been very They've been in areas, but have kind of moved around in neighborhoods. So it's hard to kind of get everyone together to count. So it does seem like, at least in Beijing, um, you know, the, the the journalists who were there. And I should point out, I live only about a kilometer or so, or a kilometer and a half away from this. But I wasn't there on Sunday night. It happened after I'd gone to bed. So, you know, there are journalists and people who have a better firsthand account than I do. Uh, but it does seem, you know, that I know the size of the space they were in, and just based on, you know, an eyeball estimate. I mean, you're talking, you know, a few hundred people at least, and I would imagine estimates might be even more. I don't know, David, if you heard differently.
2: The the interesting thing I heard was from a, a former student who's in Shanghai right now, and he he happened to, I think he said he happened to just wander into the the protests there. And I asked. Actually, I asked him that question. I, I said, "Well, what was you know what was the size of the crowd exactly?" And he said an interesting thing. He said, "Do you mean the size of the crowd or the size of the onlookers?" And I realized that in fact that <laughs> that makes it very difficult to come up with a number because for all the people that are yelling or holding up uh, you know A four sheets of paper and so forth, there's also a lot of people that are just gawking. Or we call it rubbernecking, I guess, uh, and they may mm-hmm. participate or they may yell or they may just be walking through the street, I, I I don't know. But I mean, I think it's probably impossible once the, and especially uh, you might ask the question also, you mean the crowd in front of the police line or behind the police line? So I, I think it's a blurry concept of crowd size. It's, if you mean everyone that's just there, sort of aware of it, that could be in the many hundreds, maybe even a thousand or more. If it's just people actively shouting and getting uh, press coverage, it may be only... You know, dozens or a hundred or something. I have no idea.
0: That that's long been a feature of dissent in China, though, hasn't it? The the melon eating crowds on the yeah, side, right. you know, whether online or in the streets.
2: Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: I think the arguments over crowd size may obscure kind of a larger point, though, which is that to be even to be out there, we've seen some videos of people who have who, who have been outspoken. Even if it's a few dozen people, a few hundred people, they're taking an enormous risk, and to do that can't be diminished. At the same time, just because they weren't joined by thousands of other people marching in the street doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't the same sentiments. There's a lot of reasons why people don't go out in the streets to protest in China, not the least of which in Chaoyang District, many people are still locked in their apartment complexes. So I think, you know, I think when I saw some arguments on Twitter about, oh, it was this size, it was that size, we're undercounting, we're overcounting. I'm not quite sure that's the discussion we need to be having. I think the discussion is should be those people who are brave enough to go out and say something. How reflective is what they're saying of a general zeitgeist in a particular city or even in the country?
3: Yeah. And I mean, let's let's stay with that. How would you describe the general level of anger and frustration that, you know, on the eve of this crisis? We'll go into what touched it off in just a second. But were you surprised that something like the Urumchi fire was enough to... Set this tinder alight, or was this something you saw as pretty inevitable?
2: Uh, I think we, we Jeremiah and I were talking about this last just last night. Actually, I think part of it was the sort of uh, letdown when, after months and months of thinking that the, the trajectory was a positive one and we were moving out of this this phase, that suddenly, for some reason we still not are sure about, there was a spike in cases everywhere, and especially in Beijing. And so everything kind of immediately went back into lockdown after after several months of relative freedom. And I think that you know even though it's no worse than it was in the past, I think there was a, there was a sense of a massive sense of frustration that happened to coincide at this, the same moment that there was the uh, the fire in Urumqi and also the the, the fact that um, you had uh, you know this connection to other sorts of demonstrations happening throughout the world. I mean, people were bringing up uh, the protests in Iran um, and, and elsewhere. And, and, so I think there was just a kind of, it was kind of a, a triggering mechanism that set off this, uh, as I say, they just wanted to, to blow off steam or something like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Well, you brought up also it, it, one of the aspects of the crowd is the demographics and the number of young women who are speaking up. Uh, I think that's been a pretty remarkable thing. And, you know, part of it, um, and there are people. Let me just be clear: there are people who are much better qualified to speak on this than you know a fifty-year-old white guy. But I, I, there is a sense that the restrictions, the stress, the anxiety, the pressures of living with zero COVID um, for you know three years, and there have been good moments and there's been bad moments. But at the same time, a lot of those pressures have fallen disproportionately on women in relationships in marriages, in mothers who have to be. Accountable for kids who are being in and out of school because you know, unfortunately, childcare often falls on the women in China, even those who are fully employed, and just a, a very non-scientific, anecdotal um, spectrum of people that we know. It is striking to me just how much angrier slash depressed so many of our women friends are uh, than necessarily a lot of our male friends who are also upset too. But there's this—I can't even really pin the name for this emotion of just somebody who is so pissed off and depressed at the same time. It, it reminds me a little bit of the way that people felt. Some people felt, not everyone, in the immediate aftermath of the election of Donald Trump. Um, hmm. You know, there was that moment of just frustration, um, anger, resignation, depression, all at the same time, and. I think impotence too right to some extent that's a good point Jeremy I think what's being expressed here I know we're hearing different things like for free speech and for free media and end to zero COVID and all kinds of things I don't know if necessarily anyone is is advocating a particular ideology or ideological movement I think these are ways to express that very complicated bundle of emotions that have been building up for a while and have finally found if only for a moment brief release
3: yeah, I think it's a really good point that you make about uh, uh the the burden falling on women. I heard a lot of reporting you talking about 3 years of lockdown and I wanted to quibble with that just to say hey, let's 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 not forget about that relative freedom, you know, bef- between you know what April or May of, of 2020 all the way through, you know, early this year, um actually a lot of us in the US and in Europe were quite envious of you guys, but we we shouldn't forget that schools for a lot a lot of that period were still remote, right. and that you know children were at home, and there was a lot of disruption to work life balance. And women, it fell on 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 the shoulders of women. And I think the other co manalists on this mantle will agree. God. Yeah. Also, I, I was, uh, by the way, I, I just an apology that I mean I reached I had to find people who had been living in Beijing for a long time, and sorry, the only two that I thought of were. Two white dudes.
2: Middle-aged white males. Yeah. Well, I mean,
3: uh, the other thing- Technically, David, you're a senior now, right? That's so- true. I'm a senior, yeah.
0: I'm,
2: I'm a minority. <laughs> I'm an oppressed- You'll never be a I'm senior, a, David.
3: A- <laughs> <laughs> That's worse. <I'm> not- Boomer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> another another side to this is is that in terms of you know you say what's the demographics of of, of the anger i mean this is has so, a lot in common with some of the past events in that the, basically, basically every demographic group has been affected by this and every class yeah. and every class has been affected by this uh i right now uh in my apartment here uh are i e who is um, our, you know, sort of cleaning woman who comes a couple times a week to clean the apartment for the last seven, eight, whatever, 10 years, um, is now living at my apartment because last week she heard that the area that she lived in was going to be shut down at midnight, locked down, and that, that there was no, there was no uh, timetable about when she could get out. And she's someone who's living from month to month, if not week to week. On the money she gets from cleaning houses, you know, she's a Baumul, you know, probably taking care of kids occasionally. And she panicked and she called me up and said, you know, can I stay at your house for a few days? I I don't want to be stuck there. And so she's actually living with me here now for a week or so. And uh, like yesterday, day before yesterday, she was in the hallway and overheard, she saw a hazmat Suited uh, Dabai going upstairs and heard some people talking about getting a getting a test uh, on someone on the third floor, and she was in a sh- in a sheer panic. She was just literally cringing uh, in her room there, saying, "Oh no, they're going to shut this place down too." And if they find out I'm here, she was afraid she was going to get in trouble. And you know, this is just a slice of the kind of. Mixture of fear and confusion and uncertainty, and monetary, you know, insecurity, and all these sorts of things. You know, she's already gone way out of her way to f- figure out a way to get through this, and and now there's all, there's all these. Every situation is fraught with p- potential disaster in one way or the other. And this is just a. Everywhere you look, anyone you talk to, there are these pieces or these extended periods of insecurity, frustration rage, impotence, just a feeling that there's nothing I can do about this. And uh, I think that that's, that's another reason, too. Everyone, uh, everyone, you know, and, and also women, of course, are being hit. But everyone from every demographic, every age group, including kids, are, are, are under extreme stress.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I want to speak up to you about that three-year thing, Kaiser. You're right that... You know, there was a time when we in China were able to do some things people in the U.S. weren't able to do. And, you know, China made that very clear because there was a triumphalist narrative as the media here proceeded to dunk on the rest of the world. And, in an almost mocking tone would regularly post the death rates in the U.S. and other places as well. But that doesn't mean like the last three years have been easy. Every, even back in the you know days of 2020 and 2021, when we were the rest of the world was you know obviously in crisis, and it wasn't so much of a crisis here. We were still only one outbreak away from getting our apartments locked down. Businesses yeah. were one outbreak away from losing all their employees. So many businesses that were part of the fabric of Beijing have not survived. Um, so many restaurants, stores, travel businesses the number of people who are key parts of the fabric, both Beijingers and international residents who had to leave because they weren't able to make a living in the last three years. It, right. it, this last year has been particularly hard. But I think part of it was that in those first two years, people here could say, at least say, hey, listen, the rest of the world has gone to hell. This is the one safe space. So we're willing to put up with this. But now we're in a situation where right or wrong, I mean, the pandemic is still a very serious problem. But right or wrong, people are looking at the rest of the world and going, okay, now why are we doing this again? And as David says, the explanations remain consistent. They haven't changed. And the new, there's been no, no new information about why we're keeping going in this way. There is no sense of, hey, this is the plan. And right. we're starting to see a little bit of that this week, just a little tiny bit. But I don't know if it's going to be enough uh, or if it's going to be too late to keep people's anger in check, even if they're not on the street.
0: So, I mean, today there was a a, a, a little bit of commentary that um, suggested there may be more flexibility uh, from one of the state organizations. But even in early November, there was quite a lot of talk that I heard from friends in Beijing about a relaxation of COVID restrictions. And in fact, the party leadership published a 20-point guideline for easing COVID restrictions. What, what was the reaction to those guidelines? And do you think, uh, in hindsight, that Uh, you know, the population was already grumbling uh, about uh, covered curbs, that uh, the 20-point guideline was, uh, you know, the state giving a little or signaling a willingness to soften up a bit. Um, I mean, if you think of sort of Tocqueville's, you know, uh, Le Ancien Régime, the, 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 the theory that once the sort of autocratic regime softens, shows a little sign of softening, that's when the trouble starts. Is there any any substance to that?
2: Well, both of us can talk. Jeremiah can talk to this t- as t- as well. But first of all, twenty points—that's a lot of points to to re- to remember. And there and there also the fact that there's so many points means there's a lot of futzing around with little details. Some of the easing had nothing to do with the, the domestic situation. It had to do with. Uh, flights coming from abroad and the, the the shortening of quarantine times for for travelers and things like that so so most of those of the of the tweaking in those points had very little effect on everyday life and and even the ones that that have been promised the 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 end of the what do they call it the in the second level contact uh you know uh when the windows pop up you know even though they've 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 loosened that restriction, it ha- it has very little effect on the actual uh, day-to-day life, and it has very little effect on the insecurity that people feel. And as you know, Jeremiah was saying, we would have two weeks, three weeks, a month of relative freedom, and then sort of arbitrarily there would be su- a sudden lockdown. Um, I had a lockdown here in my building, on my in my residence compound for about a week. And um, it literally happened instantaneously. It was it had happened just a few minutes before I came home from work, and was told that if you go in, you can't come out. And we had no long we had no idea how long it would last. It turned out they said maybe five days, maybe a week. It turned out to be just four days. But we were never given any explanation. Uh, there was never any uh, mention in the, in the jiu wei hui of exactly the timetable, and there was certainly nothing about from the from the Chaoyang authorities. Uh, saying anything about, and there was actually only rumors that the reason was that five or six people had tested positive in a in a compound, a building, a, a, a compound that was like a, a a short distance from our compound. So, I mean, mm-hmm. this is typical. This is absolutely typical. And so, you know, you may have a brief period of, f- of freedom and of relatively nor- of normalcy, and then it just goes away and it could go away Like with my eyes, suddenly she doesn't know when she can go back. No one's told her, even given an estimate. And, uh, you know, this is so these 20 points. By the way, I I just noticed that as soon as these uh, protests occur on Sunday, there's these sudden announcements. Uh, The one I saw just today was, oh, they're going to hold weekly press conferences now giving updates mm. on the epidemic condition well ha- fancy that <laughs> actually uh-huh. updates every week and so and, and the same thing with uh uh they were talking about loosening uh, restriction in xinjiang came at exactly the same time for exactly the same reason and also an announcement that they're, they're now going to up they're going to step up va- uh, vaccination efforts for for people over 80. So, you know, this came in almost instantaneously, instantaneously after the the protests on Saturday night. You know, go figure.
3: Yeah, go figure. Speaking of uh, restrictions, how severe has internet censorship been? Are you hearing about outright bans of Weibo accounts or WeChat accounts? Or has it just been mostly post-deletions? And, and, and you know, as always with these things, people have found really, really clever workarounds, which I always kind of delight in reading about. Uh, what are some of the more clever things that you've seen deployed in the avoidance of censorship?
1: Well, you know, you, you have the usual workarounds on of, of playing around with the files that are actually posted or images or videos that are posted onto Weixin or Weibo that have different elements put into them that help to kind of disrupt the algorithms and require a much more manual process of actually looking at the videos. And that, that, can, that can slow down the censorship. And, you know, uh, I... I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I don't know the technical side of it, but it does feel like there are times and people debate this, but like oh, especially overnight when there's a huge deluge of videos, it does feel like the censors get a little bit or the censorship apparatus gets a little bit overwhelmed or at least more things are visible. Um there have been yeah. people who have had their WeChat accounts, you know, suspended which <laughs> If you live in China and your WeChat account's suspended, I mean, it's like someone taking away your, you know, your wallet, your house keys, and your, you know, your your phone at the same time. Yeah, uh, so that has happened. I've had, I know people have had their WeChat accounts locked, which is not quite the same thing, but it's still a pain in the ass. And, you know, there are stories, and I, it seems to be quite, has been verified, that at least in Shanghai, and one presumes in other cities where we don't necessarily have people checking, uh, that police are asking people to open up their phones just like they do when you get detained one of the first things they'll do is they'll ask you to open up your phone so they can check to see what's on it now they're doing that as kind of a random uh process and in some parts of shanghai at least for in very sensitive areas and if anyone looks like they've taken a picture we've even seen some reports and you've probably seen the same one that they're checking for things like uh you know
2: vpns like
1: different vpns and things like that I, I don't know how widespread that is but if that's if that's now part that's something that's been happening in places like xinjiang for 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 quite a while yeah if that's now happening in, in some of the big cities you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of people who have things on their phone they probably shouldn't i, I don't know that many people in beijing again this is you know i i the circles that I run in are international circles of, of people who often have lived over abroad. So many of them have VPNs and other software on there that would be seen as problematic. I don't know about, you know, Auntie Lee or Auntie Wong, but still, it is an interesting ramp up of those precautions.
2: Also, the, um, the Great Firewall is, ha, is and has always been leaky. And uh, when I first began to get suspicious on Saturday that something was about to happen, was that in my WeChat uh, what do you call it my WeChat moments do we do say use that word WeChat moments, yeah, we call it moments uh, I began right. to see people uh, you know retweeting we don't say retweet we re- what do we say <laughs> reposting reposting um, videos very obvious uh, protests and um, you know various various memes and uh, these are from people who my friends who would normally not post such things, and I would go back and find some of them deleted maybe 15 minutes later. But, the, but it the, they became such a deluge that, that there was literally no time. And they came one after another. Um, and so I think there was a, a moment when the dam, when the levee broke, and people went oh it's happening so so fast and furious that there's really no risk at all because there's there's way too much for them to to take notice of this one and then I began to notice and I I've actually heard also some reporters talking about this that you know a lot of people do have vpn's or they uh, or people that are reading their tweets do have or their postings have vpn's also or have access to the great firewall outside the firewall and so they would, they would take screenshots or save videos, put them on Twitter, and then now they're worldwide. And then, then, the, then other people began to, to get on Twitter and find stuff they like and then put it back on WeChat on, on, uh, or Weibo. So you had this flow back and forth of people posting stuff, putting it on the, the foreign internet, getting it back inside of the Great Firewall you know sometimes the same people but sometimes people just sharing stuff indiscriminately so the leaky it, the levy broke for a while with the great firewall is what happened
0: so let's talk a little bit about students uh, the communist party is uh, used to but also particularly jittery about university protests for some reason um what has happened on college campuses in beijing and elsewhere um And I I think I've heard rumors that Tsinghua is planning to end the semester early and go to remote learning, sending students home. What what do we know about that?
1: Yeah, it does seem that the universities are offering special discounted or free tickets for students who want to depart early for vacation. Um, It's not just Tsinghua, apparently other universities are doing the same thing as well. And yeah, there is a sort of I guess feeling of sending the youth back to the countryside or back home to, <laughs> to but the other thing too, it and, and and David who who works more regularly on campuses right now than I do uh can can talk about this, but university campuses have been particularly sites of frustration. The restrictions placed on faculty and students have been much more onerous and, and ongoing, like all the way back to twenty twenty, uh than almost any at least any other subset I can be, I'm I i I'm aware of. Uh, maybe in factories, it's the same thing. But I just know in Beijing, talking to people who work in universities who are students there, you know, they have to apply to, sometimes they have to apply to leave campus faculty have to apply to go back home. Some students aren't able to leave campus at all. And, you know, a lot of students that I've talked to have this feeling of like, going a little bit stir crazy. So it, it wasn't terribly surprising that you know, once a couple of students or a few students, at, at especially at elite universities like Peking University or Tsinghua, start speaking up, they're going to attract a crowd, and a crowd will make people brave, and people will also start speaking out as well. And because these are some wicked smart kids, they've got some wicked smart ways of doing it. And uh, so some of the manifestos that have at least been circulating online that are purportedly from the students, um, you know, they have the, they're the kind of documents that, you know, are interesting to read and, and maybe worth saving depending upon how things turn out as a, you know, a primary document for future historians.
3: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
2: Yeah. It's definitely been a, a hardship for students uh, because they sort of live in, you know, they're just sort of limbo they're, They They either have homes uh, in other provinces or in Beijing, and then they have their dorms. And so, and then, so, the 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 constant switching back and forth. I mean, it's been hard enough on me as a teacher to keep keep uh, ping ponging between campus teaching and online teaching. And it gets very disorienting. But for them, it's it is really hardship because you know they have to they have to take into account you know their daily lives, their meals, their families. You know how, how do they actually go about their daily lives? But also, um, I, I've had a sense that the student demographic when you mix it into all the other people that are upset they have they are the ones who have a little bit more of a historical awareness and a sort of ideological grievances that they they bring to the to the uh to the complaint as well whereas most of the people if you ask them you know what's the point of all this disgruntled rioting and protests they would say it's just it's the covid uh, protocols and and the lockdowns and the uncertainty that's what that's what's making us mad. The students would say the same thing, but but they have very quickly gone to the other very long-standing grievances about uh, freedom of speech, freedom, of academic freedom. They've also been the victim uh, in the last ten years or so of increased ideological education. That uh, you know, students are now way, They've gone back to the 1970s, at least 80s um with uh, you know useless dry you know requirements for mar- uh, Marxist education uh, they, they of course they're very uh, invested in freedom of the internet and freedom of ex- exploring cyberspace and they're frustrated with that and and also they're just they see themselves you know what you saw during these protests is people were bringing up the same things as the as the 89 protesters were they, they're bringing up uh, the New Youth magazine, you know, the May Fourth movement, and bring up quotes from Chen Duxiu and from Chairman Mao, and think things about freedom and, and Lu Xun, bringing up the the uh, you know this famous story about or the analogy or metaphor of the iron the iron house, uh, the Lu Shun's famous uh, metaphor, right. and all these kind of things. The students are more aware of that, so they that goes into the mix. But my feeling is that the people who are not students, uh, they may. Resonate with that to some extent, but that's not really their gripe. And and the students, I think some of the students are trying to write manifestos and kind of getting a movement going, but I I don't sense any any enthusiasm for that. People are not in the mood. Huh. People are not in the mood for an ideological revolution. We're not in the mood to solve that problem right now. I think the immediate problem is the is the is the epidemic.
3: Yeah, you've anticipated the question that I was going to ask you, which was you know about the inevitable comparisons to nineteen eighty nine. And I, I don't think that people can be faulted for going there mentally right away. Uh, I mean, it, it obviously uh, is something that many of the students themselves are doing. So people who on the on the outside who make those comparisons aren't completely, you know, uh, without some foundation. But again, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how useful those comparisons are, and I think you've answered that pretty well. I mean, well, I think one of the, the questions,
1: you know, we always talk about this, this the last couple of generations of Chinese students who grew up after 1989 part uh, you know they were part of the patriotic education that you know was brought in was brought in as a reaction to what had happened in 1989 and of course there's been all this you know debates about student nationalism and patriotism and you know the the little pinks and all this kind of thing i think one of the interesting things that i've been seeing and again it is impossible to generalize we're talking a lot of different people a lot of different students a lot of different places but it is interesting to see how a lot of the students are framing their dissent, and this this does have some through lines to 1989 as well, as as part of a nationalist you know, movement. They, they are still being patriots, they're still being nationalists, but they are opposing certain policies, they're opposing certain aspects of how things are being run. And that, if you're a member of the party, that could actually be on some level a little bit threatening because the idea that many of these students might be waking up to the uh, the notion that the party and the government and the government and the people may in fact have some divisibility is probably a lesson the party would not want the students to learn. I don't wanna take this too far. This is not, I'm not saying there's some huge wedge or anything. But I do think that there are some students who have been raised in this patriotic education hothouse who are starting to kind of question some of the assumptions that they've been making over most of their lives. And one can make an, an argument that part of the sort of, you know, depression, anger, uh, dissonance that we're seeing is, you know, a little bit of that awakening process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, connected to that, uh, there has been a lot made of people in Shanghai shouting, Xi Jinping, Xi and Gong Jinping, And these were indeed very shocking. I mean, if you've been following China since uh, the chairman of everything has been in power, I mean, you don't hear this, you don't see this kind of language in China. Um, but how big of a threat to the regime do you think this really is?
1: You know, I think that first of all, we don't really know where this is going. But I do feel that for most people who are out there who are either resisting the zero COVID policies or demonstrating with blank pieces of paper or in other ways, I think the, the catalyst for this has a lot to do with the immediate situation right now and a questioning of the governance of the party rather than necessarily a questioning of the party's existence unto itself. And so, you know, I think a little bit like how some, we, some, it was possible to misread some aspects of 1989. You know, we outside of China are often conditioned to see any kind of unrest as being specifically attacking the system itself. And I'm not saying there weren't people who were definitely saying that or who have that idea in mind, but I, my feeling, and this is also just kind of talking to people who weren't at the protest, kind of private conversations, I don't feel like there's that many people who are like, we have to overthrow the system. It's more like, we need the system to work. And right now, the system is not working for us, and we need to do something about that. Now, in a system like this, of course, there's not much that can be done, and so you can understand why that frustration, at least for some of the bolder people, angrier people, or more ideologically-minded people, might take the form of shouting things like, you know, down with Xi Jinping or down with the party. And I'm sure those sentiments were in the crowd, absolutely. I just wonder how much that was the dominant feeling versus some of the other more immediate problems. Yeah, yeah.
0: Which echoes, I think, what David was saying earlier. Um, Now, on another subject, Coming from completely the other side, there, there have already been some state actors and pro-state voices who've suggested that all of this is, of course, a plot by hostile foreign forces, uh, including some fairly influential people like um, Chairman Rabbit Ren Yi, who's you know a popular kind of nationalist blogger. Do you think that this uh, story will have any uh, will have legs in China? That the foreigners are behind all of this?
1: Already seeing on our WeChat, uh, like WeChat yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. WeChat groups I'm in. Oh, I see some, I'm just seeing some crazy shit. Like, this is also part of the whole... The U.S. Navy has shown up off the coast. This is a coordinated effort <laughs> that saboteurs within your... No, this is within the apartment complex. Saboteurs are going to be weakening the resolve of the Chinese people at the same time the U.S. Navy is planning an attack. And uh, yeah, I saw it this afternoon. And that was fun. And I, I yeah. thanked my father-in-law for sending that message.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the The protests in Beijing were by Liangmatiao, right? So the foreign that's district, close to the U.S. Yeah, embassy. Right. Yeah, that
1: was that, Chairman
0: Rabbit's primary evidence for the hostile foreign forces. I, I don't know if Chairman
1: right. I don't know where Chairman Rabbit lives, but Liangmatiao that area is is been a, a, a an attractive spot for all kinds of activities since COVID occurred. When they closed the bars, that's where everyone went to go drink. It was called like you know hook out by the hook up by the he, because everyone would go out there and party till like three or four in the morning. Like I'd go. I go running out there at like 5 o'clock and there'd still be like a couple hundred people like just hanging out, like just drinking and playing guitar and stuff. And so you had families picnicking and people partying. It's not a surprise. It's one of the few spaces right now in Beijing that's kind of park-like. It's scenic. It's in an area with a lot of residential uh, compounds. There were a lot of restaurants and bars in the area that are now closed. Yes, it's close to the embassy. Well, I think a lot of it had to do with it's one of these spaces where you don't have to go through any gates or any checkpoints to get to, and it's been a place where people have been hanging out for most of the last couple of years, especially this this last year. So, yeah, I think I think Chairman Rabbit needs to do a couple of deep knee bends.
2: <laughs> you know, there was a, I think again a woman I think stated this when when someone was accusing you know foreign influences of in, in these protests. And she said, oh, do you, by foreign influences, who do you mean? People like Marx, Engels?
3: That's what the hostile foreign forces would say.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but my, my re- 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 response to that would be, foreign influences? Haven't you come to Beijing? There's no foreigners left. There's no foreigners here to influence anything.
3: <laughs> <laughs> David, David, you circulated on Facebook and Twitter a recent Nature Medicine paper, Uh that models the likely consequences of actually lifting restrictions, and it was written, you know, a multi-author peer-reviewed paper, uh, and the projections are pretty grim. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how you think the the regime is thinking about you know changes to COVID to well, dynamic zero? COVID? Right.
2: Yeah. So this paper is just one of many, right? So it doesn't really matter too sure. much the specifics. But basically, uh, it was modeled on. Uh, I think, as of May of this year, if they had lifted restrictions and there were still no new vaccines available or any better vaccines available, the prediction was that something like uh, 1.5 there would be 1.5 million deaths within a certain amount of time, uh, 77% of those being people over 60, um, and that there were it would that there would be a uh, Stress, stress, 15-fold stress on the ICUs that would be, you know, beyond anything that they could currently handle and so on and so forth. This is right. just one model, right? And you don't know. I mean, there, there's all sorts of contingencies that could that could occur. But the idea is that any model you do at this point is going to look something like that. And the reason, you know, that the quandary that the party has now, and many people are discussing this, is that they, they basically had um, – a really uh, good idea of how their system could be employed early on t- to do it, to go a different route, which is uh, zero COVID, to crush it. And then with, with you know, monitoring and stuff to keep the, the cases as low as possible and to keep the death rate as low as possible. But incredibly, it seems like they didn't think a lo- ahead to the fact that at some point you have a population that doesn't have any herd immunity, that the, that you ought to be, have been spending the last two years rushing to get uh, vaccines in the arms of people over 60 because that's where the death rate is. And yet astonishingly, this, the, the party didn't do that. They sort of squandered the entire last year uh, with, without actually promoting, you know, more vaccinations for older people and and either developing or borrowing a vaccine that would work. And, uh, you know, there, people know this, it's, it's, it's completely open Uh and people, you know, it's it's not a secret to the, the general populace that uh, just merely uh, lifting all the restrictions is not going to solve the problem. It's going to just create another problem. So they've created a situation where all they can do is keep, uh, you know, zero COVID policy, which is a destroying the economy and actually leading to the sorts of situations we have now, which where people are revolting, you know, or <laughs> you can just... Uh, Loosen things up and and let the death rate take its to- Let take its natural course. There's no other po- no other choice. They they painted themselves into a corner, right? So I, I I have talked to some people. This is even before all these protests, and and the the issue of vaccines would come up. And uh, I have a next I have a neighbor here in the compound who goes out for Yang Rochar invites me along. But he but he said literally, this is like a month or two ago. He said he said the. They're, they're afraid of losing face if they say, look, we can't develop a good vaccine. We're going to borrow Pfizer or Moderna or something or other, and we're going to put it in the arms of everybody over he 60. Said, he said, they're afraid of losing right. face. And he said to me, he said, that's exactly the opposite case. If Xi Jinping were to come out and, and apologize and say, look, we miscalculated, we're now going to buy you know, a billion you know doses of Moderna, and, and we're going to give it to everyone free who's over 60... The exact opposite would be the case. Everyone would applaud. Everyone would say, at last, as an enlightened ruler who sees things clearly and is working for the will, the will of the people. He said He said it would be the exact opposite. His approval ratings would go for the, through the roof if he did that. But the, the, do you think he'll do that? Do you think the party could, could survive the loss of face of depending on a foreign vaccine? Uh, evidently not.
0: I, I mean, I think a lot of the vaccination discussion does, uh, it starts to feel... Uh, like people have staked out their positions i mean i i 've heard frequently that you know all the Chinese people simply won 't get vaccinated because of the history of low quality vaccines in China. That seems to be an argument that is made in, in to back up um the fact that the communist party refused to use its awesome power to vaccinate everybody um uh and you know i don 't know uh is that a factor, Jeremiah and David, uh, older people's reluctance to get vac- vaccinated?
1: I think that just like in the United States, there's a lot of reasons for vaccine hesitancy. Uh, some of it, you're right, there's some historical reasons here. There some, there's some That's certainly part of it. Some of it is that the most vulnerable populations are not necessarily in the cities, they're in the countryside or in smaller villages or towns. And, you know, the education level of that generation in those places is not super high. And so it's very they're very susceptible to rumors, they're very susceptible to misinformation about vaccines as well. But I think one of the biggest reasons is that and this kind of goes to what David was saying, the plan seems to be That eventually COVID would magically disappear in the rest of the world, or there would be some magic cure for it. Right, (laughs) and so most people in China were just like, "Keep the keep the you know we've got we man the walls, pull up the drawbridges, and let us know when it's over." And then it doesn't. And then it didn't end. And so exactly,
0: and and that was an attitude amongst the people, right? Because most people didn't think.
1: Most people still don't think they're going to get COVID ever. And so this, the the real challenge here is David saying so a lot of older people were like well I'm not going to get covid anyway so why do it and even in the very beginning there wasn't an, an, a real effort to vaccinate older people because the first target groups were always you know the economically important workers young people we got to keep them in the factories and so there were some mixed right. messages in the beginning and we you know you think about how the various forms of information and mixed messages cause all kinds of problems and confusion in the United States and other places over vaccine, you know, talking about a one way trip to crazy town and it's it, the same, the exact same thing as here. Um, yeah. All those different, you know, the spectrum of hesitancy and as David pointed out there hasn't been for whatever reason, a concerted effort or at least there, at least until this week, a concerted effort to really combat that hesitancy, and to set a realistic target, what they probably need to do is also set some kind of date. But that, of course, opens up all other issues. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll have to see how this goes. I I don't have a lot of faith, not so much in the vaccines. I mean, whether they work or not, it's great if they do, but whether or not they'll be able to meet these targets.
2: I guess a crucial question is, uh, was this decision to keep pursuing the zero COVID policy the decision of Uh, Thousands of medical experts having uh, you know months and months of meetings on the topic, or was it the decision of one person?
0: And we probably know the answer to that. That's
2: that's a question,
3: right? And we don't know, but
0: we can we can make an educated guess about the answer to that.
2: Yeah,
3: right. And most people have made that same guess, but uh, yeah, I mean, especially because you know the optics right now about Xi coming out of Party Congress having you know arrogated to himself more power than ever. So yeah, I think it's it's a fair assumption. Speaking of, of coercive authority, what have you guys made so far of the police response to bring this back to the protests themselves? I mean, it differed obviously in different cities like in Shanghai, you know you had this BBC reporter Ed Lawrence roughed up, even kicked as I understand it, by cops and and then detained. But what about in Beijing and, and other places that you're aware of? It does feel like
1: at least in Beijing that the initial response was to contain the protests. Make sure they didn't get out of hand. I mean, you know, people were saying some pretty inflammatory things, and the police. It felt. I mean, you, you may want to also again talk to people who are right in the middle of the crowd. My my general policy in these situations is not to be there, uh, because there's nothing I can do to help, and my presence is probably just going to make it worse. But the it does feel like the police were a lot more hands off now. You know, there's an example. Uh, there was one group that kind of loudly proclaimed they were heading for Tiananmen, and this kind of got all on Twitter. Like they're marching on Tiananmen Square. Well, I think what happened was they hived off from the main group on the Liangma River and were heading in that general direction, ten kilometers down the road. And the police were like, and the and the police were kind of like playing pond hockey and kicked them back into play. Like, nope, 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 you're going to be over here. And so that was that was the first night. But again, it does feel like in Shanghai, and we talked about this in the beginning. That on night two and night three, either they got new orders or they were just tired of, you know, having to be passive in the face of, you know, direct threat, direct challenges to their authority. So the police, you know, were much tougher. And, you know, you know, uh, you know, journalists, you got to remember what these security guys they're hearing. You know, we think about the external propaganda about the West and hostile foreign forces and the evil media and all this stuff that gets published imagine what these guys get in their like private briefings and so it's it's not i mean it's it's a horrifying thing and it's a hard i mean say this there aren't that many journalists right now in beijing and it is so much harder to be a journalist right now in china than at any other time i can remember and you know the fact that the government comes across and says things like the the, the statement about this that they were just protecting him from getting covid by kicking him in the head well it's so, a well-known
0: uh, cure actually <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
1: It's, a, it's a it's a it's a cure for a lot of things but it ain't a cure for that and it's, it's probably a cure for whatever ails like Li jian but it, <laughs> it was
3: not something that was appropriate for a, for a journalist who was just doing his job so with that great image of Jolly Jen being kicked in the head, I think we can we can wrap this conversation thanks guys you know that was that was a ton of fun well I wouldn't say it was a ton of fun but it was all it's great to catch up with you and and thank you for that on the ground reporting about what's happening Jeremy and I are, are frustrated at not being able to actually you know see what's going on right now and it's it's at the same time i'm I'm really glad as hell not to be there but uh anyway uh, thank you both. And uh, I look forward to having you guys back on the show again soon. Don't forget to check out the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. Uh, but uh, let's move on to recommendations first. Jeremy, do you want to make a quick plug for, for some of our fine China Project products?
0: Yeah. One thing I should plug that I haven't done on, on the podcast recently is Tip Sheet, which is our uh, morning, at least morning in the US, evening in China, uh, business newsletter that covers uh you know one major business story and updates from the chinese business press every day and it's currently free you don't actually have to be a paid subscriber to get it that may not last much longer uh but yeah tip sheet yeah
3: um, yeah great help us keep the lights on all right yeah. let's move on to recommendations and uh, jeremy why
0: don't you kick us off what did you got for us so I am, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, going to recommend that Twitter account that Jeremiah mentioned, and it is indeed the same as Li Lausher, Bush and Li which means uh, Teacher Li isn't your teacher. But the actual Twitter handle is Why You Told Jalu, and Told Jalu, of course, means you know, um, laughing, uh, sneakily laughing. Um, and it's uh, if you're trying to follow what's going on in China, it's collecting pretty much everything. That is being circulated on social media, including some of the images that may become iconic of this time, such as the workers hauling off the uh, Urumuchi Road sign in Shanghai. You know, it's the kind of most obvious kind of censorship. People are gathering at Urumuchi Road, so let's remove the sign. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, they won't be able to find the protest that way.
0: I'm really um, uh, horrified at myself for recommending anything on Twitter because I'm really hoping Twitter burns itself down <laughs> at the moment. But nothing has yet replaced it as the sort of uh, global place for breaking news. And one other account is Cindy Yu, who's the Spectator uh, editor and podcaster based in London, uh, and she actually puts subtitles on a video of. Uh, the person that one of you mentioned, who said, "You know, the only foreign forces here are marks and angles." Uh, so, Cindy used Twitter feed, and why you told you a Twitter feed?
3: All right, uh, great, great re- recommendation, Jeremiah. You're up next. What you got? Well, that Urimchi Road
1: thing reminds me of something from back home in New Hampshire. The old joke about the guy who didn't want the deer crossing in his road, his yard anymore, so he moved the deer crossing sign. <laughs> <laughs> what i'd like to recommend is a book that i've been work, uh, i've been talking about in a history discussion group here in beijing and for people who are interested in kind of a historical context for why public health and disease matters so much in modernity and in kind of the self-image of china as a modern nation i highly recommend a book by the historian ruth ragaski called hygienic modernity meanings of health and disease in treaty port china Yes, it's an academic book, but it's really well done. And it, it touches on a lot of the issues of why, issue, why things like disease, smells, hygiene, all of these things became encoded in a definition of modernity that then, of course, has been perpetuated and deployed throughout the 20th into the 21st century. If you're looking for the historical context for a lot of what's happening, um, this is a great place to
3: start. Yeah, only thirty six ninety nine on Amazon <laughs> hardcover. No, that's not bad for an academic book. I'm Usually they're, they're just totally, totally unaffordable. So Ruth Rogoski, excellent recommendation. Thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, and David, what you got?
2: Um, yeah, I'd like to do a recommendation of uh, a couple things by the same person. Uh, James Griffith, who's the Asia – Griffiths, rather, is uh, the Asia correspondent for The Globe and Mail. And actually, we've interviewed him for our podcast um, uh, he has a great short article, uh, t- I guess today in the Globe and Mail, uh, called "In Rare Show of Weakness, China's Censors Struggle to Keep Up with Zero-Covid Protests," and he just he basically says the same thing that I just said about this sort of bleed through of Twitter and and WeChat and and Weibo and the fact that that. The you know the Great Firewall was actually became a little bit of a bridge instead of a wall uh, during that and and he he mentions other aspects of the censorship but the main thing is by the same author is what we interviewed him about is his book of last year I guess right. called Speak Not uh, Empire Identity and the Politics of Language so the book is about language death in general world worldwide starting with his own native languages which is Welsh. Um, but then most of the book, or a, big, a huge portion of the book, talks about the languages that are near and dear to our hearts, or my heart anyway, the Cantonese, um, Tibetan, the, the, the various Xinjiang languages in China, and language uh, sort of cultural erasure or assimilation, the assimilation policy of downplaying and, and um, through the educational system, uh, letting the local languages erode so as to um, who has to promote national unity. Um, so his, his book is about that and covers some of these issues uh, you know, very well. And uh, you know, it has to do with a worldwide phenomenon. But, but in China, it's particularly uh, insidious. And uh, I think it's a good book to read just in general. And he's a smart guy, too. Yeah. You should get him on the podcast if you have. He's know.
3: very prolific. Yeah. You know? he, he wrote that book in uh, 2019, The Great Firewall of uh, Yeah, China. that's right.
2: That's right. So he, yeah. he's...
3: Quite an expert on, on, mm-hmm. on internet censorship in China. Excellent. Uh, and to me, my, my recommendation is a short documentary that you can actually find on the New York Times OpDoc channel. Uh, it just dropped last night. It's called Happiness is Four Million Pounds. It's a uh, documentary by Hawu, Wu who made 76 Days, uh, The People's Republic of Desire, and, of course, his old classic from, I think, 08 or 09. Uh, Beijing or bust. Uh, how is New York based? Really, really great filmmaker. This is really short. It's like 27 minutes or something like that. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. It, it follows a young cub reporter as she tries to, to figure out this guy who's on the opposite of the spectrum. She is idealistic and, and, you know, quite naive and, and lacking in confidence often. He is this real estate. Speculator, this like guy who's published all these books about how to get rich and he's just you know obsessed with with wealth and showiness i mean it's it's just people from different ends of of modern China colliding and it just the the interactions between them it's just fascinating it's a great piece of filmmaking uh, very short so please watch it. it's called Happiness is four million pounds i'll I'll put a little uh link to it on uh, in the show notes of course all right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh what a what a Thank fun you. conversation. And thanks, Kaiser. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to see you. And I, I miss you both. And with your stateside, I hope we can hang out. uh because I don't see myself getting back to China anytime very soon. So, yeah, <laughs> anyway. I don't
0: know. I hope they let you out, the two of you hostile foreign <laughs> forces, <this. laughs> at some point.
3: <laughs> Best of luck. We'll 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 start a campaign if you it's get. It's been it's been know,
1: like three and a half years tamed. being since I've been home. It's it's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: It is a long time. Thanks again. Okay. let Jeremy, as always. Thank you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, since Twitter is still unbelievably alive, you can follow us there or on Facebook at, at @thechinaproj And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.